Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of interviews with spiritually awakening people. There have been over 375 of them now, and if you'd like to check out previous ones, go to batgap.com and look under the past interviews menu, where you'll see them organized in four or five different ways. Um, this show is made possible by the support of appreciative viewers and listeners, so if you appreciate it and feel like supporting it to any degree, there's a donate button on every page of the site. So, today my guest is Lawrence Edwards, Ph.D. I'm kind of excited about this interview. I've really, I sometimes, I say this pretty often, but I, I really enjoyed preparing for this interview. Lawrence has a wealth of experience and wisdom and going back many decades, and I really enjoyed listening to other interviews and reading his books. Let me read a little bio here. Lawrence is a PhD and has practiced and taught meditation for over 40 years. He is the founder and director of the Anam Kara Meditation Foundation, a nonprofit organization dedicated to teaching meditative practices from a variety of traditions. The mission of the Anam Kara Foundation is to make meditation instruction available to everyone. Lawrence has offered thousands of free meditation programs at universities, hospitals, churches, meditation centers, yoga centers, hospice groups, prisons, and more. Dr. Edwards maintains a clinical practice in Armonk, New York, offering optimal mind training, transpersonal psychotherapy, spiritual mentoring, biofeedback, neurofeedback, hypnosis, peak performance training, and meditation training. He also works with people interested in spiritual growth, dream work, and kundalini processes. He has served as president of the Kundalini Research Network since 2006 and is recognized around the world for his wisdom and skill in working with Kundalini. Dr. Edwards has studied and practiced in the Kundalini Yoga tradition, Tibetan Buddhist and Huichal Indian shamanic traditions. These rich reservoirs of wisdom have expanded and deepened the transpersonal and Jungian psychological perspectives of his professional training. His mystical experiences began as a young child and have continued throughout his life. They have been the real guiding force behind his studies and training. His profound experience of the divine, present in everyone, at all times, and in all places, has led him to live a life of service in teaching and supporting others on their journeys into the divine. So, good to meet you, Lawrence. Oh, pleasure to meet you, Rick, and yeah. your audience. Yes, and uh, let's see, there's about... Yeah, it looks like about 50 people on so far, and uh, probably most of them know the drill. If they have a question during this interview, they're welcome to post it uh, in the form at the bottom of the page on the upcoming interviews page uh, on batgap.com. So, you know, you're one of these people who, I, as I read the, your book and so on, I think, I'd like to do like a one-month interview with this guy where we just read a passage and talk about it, and read a passage and talk about it. But that'd be a little difficult to do logistically, and YouTube doesn't let you upload files that big. So um, we'll have to squeeze it into two hours. But you, you do have a wealth of experience and, and knowledge, and I, I think we're going to. I've taken a lot of notes from my reading, and I, I think we're going to cover a lot of ground here. Great. Would you like to start with the experience you had during the thunderstorm when you were a child? I'll start anywhere you would like me to start. <laughs> Why don't you start there? It's a good okay. beginning. All right. So just uh, to help your audience, you've read that. And uh, it's something that I've written about uh, 
in relationship to my experiences of the divine feminine and the notion of kundalini as one name for uh, the divine and the sort of the feminine face of the divine. And one of my early experiences of that happened to be when I was about three or four years old. And I was probably three because I was still in a crib. And I woke up to this raging thunderstorm and, you know, it was crashing thunder. The lightning was flashing. And I looked up over the railing of my bed and there was what I thought was my mother standing over my bed, looking very, you know, kindly and, and compassionately at me. And as I looked at her and I remember my little, you know, voice saying, Ma, and she just stood there and a little few moments went by, a few more uh, clashes of thunder and, and flashes of lightning. And, and again, I said, Ma, and she just stood there. And it was at that point I noticed that when the lightning flashed, she disappeared. And when it was pitch dark, she was completely lit up. And she was she was literally made of light. She was radiant, exquisite light. And at that point, my little mind went, wait a minute, this isn't <laughs> this isn't Ma. And I went, Ma? And, and then I screamed again, Ma. And, and my mother from the bedroom next door came running in. And as soon as she opened the door, this lady of light disappeared. And I started telling her about the lady of light. And my mother was going, well, yeah, yeah, you have a great imagination. And, uh, you know, it was just the storm. It was just a dream. And I was absolutely, I knew that was no dream and talked about her literally for years. I mean, my brother and sister remember me talking about her, my mother, my father at that time, they have both passed away. And then fast forward to me getting very serious about yoga practices and meditation in my uh, freshman year of college. And one night uh, I had gone to bed and in the middle of the night I woke up and there she was once again, like 15, 16 years later, standing at the foot of my bed, just this beatific presence, radiant, the radiant divine. And I just became absorbed in that and passed into the profound state of meditation. And I've had those, that sense of that living presence of the divine around me and in my life. I mean, fortunately for most of my life in some way or another, and have always delighted in hearing other people talk to me and other people have written to me about, yes, they had, they had an experience of a lady of light because that's what I called her as a child. I guess from what I've read, you associated her with Kundalini later on. And um, I was wondering, well, from the traditions that you and I both um, come from or have studied, it's understood that there is a celestial realm and there are celestial beings who reside in that realm. It's not off on some other planet, it's right here, just at a subtler level. So couldn't that have been some celestial being, like maybe your guardian angel or something? I mean, why would you necessarily associate her with Kundalini? Well, y yes, and one, one level of question is, uh, could that have been? It could have been, but when she told me who she was, it was clear she was she was the great goddess. I mean, as, as those experiences evolved and made it clear that one of her forms is as the form of 
Kundalini. That's that's how she's known in the yoga tradition. But this uh, magnificent power that you know, in especially in the Shaivite tradition, we would call Shakti, mm-hmm. uh, the universal power of consciousness that creates the entire universe, including the entire universe of our individuality, uh, the entire universe of our subtle body and the chakras, and takes then the form also of Kundalini as the specific power of revelation and transformation that takes us beyond uh, the ordinary mind and our identity with this body and the roles that it plays and everything else. So when did she tell you who she was and what did she say exactly? Well, that happened uh, right around the time that I had met Muktananda, and uh, which was in 1976, and it was shortly thereafter that then I wound up uh, in the hospital, and uh, they thought I was dying of lymphosarcoma. And in the hospital, Lenox Hill Hospital, uh, I, I went into this state of meditation and then experienced the the lady of light uh, the, this divine presence and muktananda simultaneously uh, by my bedside mm. and i had only met muktananda once briefly like on a darshan line a meeting line at a program up in upstate new york but it had had a profound effect on me and was opening that connection between uh, what that living presence of the divine that i had experienced and what this rich uh, language and, and archetypes that spoke to and through uh, the the Kundalini tradition, the Shaivite tradition, the Shakti traditions. Um, and there it wasn't so much she made it, she spoke to me in, in literal words, uh, it was making it known, This these were one and the same, these were one and the same. And you, some years prior you had had some vision or some some cognition that you were going to die at around that age right i mean you right yeah uh, yeah so when i was when i was 12 um and i used to i used to love climbing up this big pine tree that was next to my house and going up onto the roof and i would just lay up on the roof and stare up at the sky and go into these kind of states of meditation and reverie and watch the clouds drift by and it, it really gave me the sense of that was the world, just clouds drifting by in the sky, thoughts drifting by in the mind, and I'd, I'd get into these just profoundly still kind of states. And at one time that happened, and I heard this voice, and it said, very matter-of-factly, uh, you're going to die by the time you're 25. And uh, to a 12-year-old, 25 seems like a really long time. I had a cousin who was 24, and I, always, I already thought he was an old man. So, you know, it, didn't, it didn't concern me at, at all. Um, but it certainly stuck in my mind. And that time when I was then hospitalized uh, at Lenox, Lenox Hill Hospital, I was 24, and my birthday was coming up in three months. And they said I might only have a couple of months to live. And then I thought of that again. I went, oh, oh, (laughs) that's what was, that's what was being communicated. (laughs) Hmm. But it turned out these growths you had in your chest were benign. They weren't cancerous and you lived. Right, right, right. I wonder if there was some kind of divine intervention, like you were given a second lease on life and like had you not been on the verge of dedicating your life to spirituality, I don't know, this is very speculative, but right. they, they might have been, you know, right. um, 
malignant and, and you might have died. It, it, well, there I mean, there are stories like that, you know, where Shankar had a number of things like that in his life where he was going to die, but he, you know, made some sort of commitment or something and it kept him alive for a number right. of, yeah. Well, I mean, that, and that was my experience. I mean, when I then was in Lenox Hill Hospital and they really thought I was going to die, uh, I I really turned to the Lady of Light. I mean, in a very conscious way of of praying to her and to Muktananda, mm -hmm. uh, who I knew had an extraordinary power that moved through him that was very reminiscent of the, the Lady of Light to me. And I offered a prayer that I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know what would come of all this, but if there was any way for their grace to carry me through that, I really would. That would. I would dedicate my life to the divine, to service of the divine. Yeah. And it was then that I fell into that deep meditation and had the experience of their presence. Mm. And it was shortly thereafter that they changed the diagnosis. Uh, and it wasn't long after that, after I got out of the hospital, I did leave everything. I left my fiance, I left my job, I left family, I left everything to, to go serve. So, yeah, it's uh, very interesting. It's almost like an archetypical kind of thing where you're on death's door and you and you know there's some divine intervention. You make a promise, it saves your life, and then you go and fulfill that promise. There, there's yeah. a number of stories like that in different traditions. Yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah, it's cool. So we have we'll kind of weave the biographical stuff in in and out as we go along, and feel free to bring up anything at any time that comes to your mind, even if I'm not asking a question about it. But We've thrown the word kundalini around a little bit here, and perhaps we better zero in on a, a better definition. I think probably most people listening to this have some idea of kundalini and chakras and all, and they think of the kundalini as some energy that's coiled up at the base of the spine and is ordinarily dormant, and then in some people it awakens and works its way up through the chakras, and that's probably the extent of what the majority of people understand about it who understand anything. So right. how would you like to elaborate on that? You got a few days? Um, <laughs> <laughs> like I said, we can make this a one-month interview, you know? <laughs> um, yes, so I, I, it's been a lot of my work, I think, has been trying to give voice or give some clarity to the magnificence of Kundalini. I mean, a lot of, uh, especially Western understanding of Kundalini is, is to me, quite limited. And what's what's often part of the root of that is much of what's communicated and has been written about kundalini is really encoded in the language of symbol and symbol points beyond itself but unless you understand the language of symbol and what these extraordinary archetypal images uh, depictions ways of talking about sound and form if you don't have a deep appreciation for that, it becomes very concrete and it becomes very kind of simplistic. And, and then a lot of the depth, the, the beauty, the meaning, uh, the profound nature of Kundalini gets lost. And so what's been sort of transferred into more popular kind of literature and understanding is this, uh, you know, the system of the chakras, as you say, you know, Kundalini coiled at the base of the spine. Well, all of that is this profound, profound symbolic language. And part of my training as a Jungian and training in symbology and the work of Joseph Campbell really helped me to understand and unfold that and, and working with teachers who 
had the wisdom to communicate that uh, in ways that you don't just get from a book. And to understand that even something as uh, seemingly concrete as, oh, here's this coiled form at the base of the spine is already so concretized what is going on there. Yeah, and a, and a physiologist would scoff at it. You know, they'd say, right. nonsense, right. there's no coiled form. We've, do, we've right. done you know, detailed anatomical research. Right. There is right. no such thing. Right. Yeah. And it, it often picks up uh, Kundalini sort of halfway through its entirety of a presence. So to understand Kundalini where it is uh, and being symbolized as this coiled form uh, in this root center, the earth center, the Muladhara chakra, you first have to start with, well, where did that, how did that even come to be? And so that's why it's the whole nature of Kundalini can't be understood separate from understanding Shakti. Shakti meaning power, the universal power of the infinite uh, to manifest form and to know that, the power of consciousness to know itself both as the form and as the formless, to create the, all the domains and universes of form out of itself, as itself. And that's the nature of Kundalini. That is the nature of Kundalini. So the symbol in the Sahasrara, the, the, the top chakra that represents that, that transcendent state of, of union, there Shiva and Shakti are one and they're inseparable. Then you get this, this dynamic play, and we could go through the stages of that if it's interesting, uh, and the evolution uh, of consciousness and how it goes from this boundless infinitude into something that's finite and measurable. Uh, and how does it then go through the stages, the successive stages of taking on form until you get to the most concrete form, the base form, of the earth element. That's what's symbolized by the Muladhara chakra. And there, then you have concrete forms symbolizing the unity of Shiva and Shakti, so that even there, they are completely present. And there, Shiva is the form of a lingam, and Shakti is the form of this classic ancient feminine form of the snake coiled around that. But in part, what it's depicting is that even in, in the uh, most concrete level of reality, Shiva and Shakti are in complete union and completely present. They're present there as form, uh, but if you could go beyond and look beyond, even in the form, you would see the formless. So you may have said this already, but let's reiterate, just because we're throwing around Sanskrit terms, Shiva and Shakti, and, and, and you know people might be having images come to mind of a, a guy with a snake around his shoulders and right. a, a river coming out of his hair and, right. and you know blue throat and so on. And you know when you go to India and you go into Multilal Banarsi Das and look at the posters, you, you know all this is depicted very very colorfully. Um, but what it really represents and is some deep primordial reality, some force of nature that is responsible for, that is kind of integral to the functioning of the universe and, the manif and, and Shakti to the manifestation of the universe. So let's, let's just elaborate on that a little right. bit so that we, well, not, I, I so that we're not just talking Hindu mythology here, that right, people right. realize we're actually talking physics and cosmology. Right. right. And it's, it's, 
And remembering Shiva, despite their, the, the interesting forms of a deity with a trident and all those things, um, Shiva, the word, just means the auspicious one. Mm -hmm. And that one is the infinite boundless consciousness and power that isn't integral to the universe, it is the universe. Right, right. Um, and so it's, it comes from a tradition that is different than our, our Western minds are, are um, very much attuned to monotheism. Um, and this is monism. So monotheism is one God and then there's all of creation. And it's primarily a kind of a dualistic perspective. Uh, monism is all there is is the one infinite and it takes on every form that you're looking at is the infinite, is the divine. You look in the mirror, you're seeing the eyes of God and the mouth of God and the face of God. Yeah. Uh, you look at anything and what you are seeing is, is that. And you are functioning as the eyes of God to know the, the finite nature of who you are and what it is to experience the universe from that perspective. So when we say Shiva, uh, or universal consciousness, that's what we're talking about. And it's, it's, the, uh, it's an artificial designation to try and separate out Shiva from Shakti, uh, the universal infinite from its power to manifest. That's, that is already an operation of mind, creating differences where difference doesn't exist. So there's no time, there's no place where those things are at all separate, any more than you could separate uh, heat from fire or light from fire. Mm. You cannot separate Shiva from Shakti, um, the infinite and its power to, to know and to manifest that. I remember Muktananda's favorite phrase was, God dwells within you as you. And right. It even had it on the billboard uh, or the sign at the, of, at yeah, the ashram there the in, in yeah. South Falls, Fallsburg. I used to go by there. Um, in fact, I was a couple hundred yards away from where you were at, in the right. summer of 76. So let, let's, let's dig into this a little bit more. So what you, what you just said is that consciousness is the sole reality and that, um, in, or in, correct me if you didn't just say this, but that the in, intrinsic to consciousness are, um, it's, is its manifesting quality, which we're calling Shakti here, and that um, through this subtle dynamics, the universe appears to to take form, right? Can, is that correct mm -hmm. way of summarizing? Yeah. Right. Okay. And um, in the human physiology, th there was a whole step-by-step uh, -step thing you went through in in your book at some point um, about this the process of manifestation and how. Uh, the individuality comes into form through that process. Do you, you know what I'm referring to? Yeah, so, well, and, and I think, uh, so we go, we'll go into that, but part of what these traditions try to lay out is then, what's the map? What's the map of how you go from the infinite to the finite? Right, that's and what I'm referring to. So one map would break it down into four bodies. Uh, there's the uh, supracausal body of the infinite that is all-encompassing, uh, is both the transcendent and the imminent in complete union. Then there's the causal body, then there's a subtle body, then there's a physical body. That's a way of understanding different levels of sort of manifestation and uh, the, the uh, consciousness as a subtle energy becoming more and more concrete until you have physical form. So that's one map. 
another map is the map of chakras. And that so that delineates it a bit further. So instead of having sort of a three stage process, causal, subtle, uh, gross, physical, now you have chakras. Uh, also looking at the different ways consciousness becomes uh, more and more dense, more and more contracted, more and more gross until you get sort of the physical elements. Yeah, and that's not and, really a, an alternate map. That's just an elaboration on the first map, right? Right, and it's and it's important to understand a map is never the territory, right. you know. Having been a backpacker and hiker and, and you know, spelunker part-time, the map is never the territory. And if you depend on the map, you're liable to get lost because there's a lot of things missing from maps. Uh, and so, yes, it's a nice sketch of what that is, but it's part of what happens when, when we don't understand the symbolic nature of what that map is. And also, you know, something that Piaget, I don't know if you're familiar with the developmental psychologist Piaget sure. um, and his stages of development. And one of the things that his work and the subsequent testing and, and everything that was done and research to validate those um, stages of cognitive development was many people get caught and there are sort of demographic studies that talk about uh, how much of the population progresses through those different phases. And one, one of the, the next to the last phase is concrete operational thinking. It's concrete thinking. Um, and that is a level of thought where it's very hard for people like uh, in, in that mind state. And when we're younger, uh, is particularly when it's, when it's dominant, uh, to see the symbolic because we're thinking concretely. And concrete thinking always leads to that kind of misinterpretation. It leads to fundamentalism. It's mistaking the symbol for you know, something that's concrete. Whereas a symbol is always pointing beyond itself. It's the old Zen saying, you know, don't confuse the finger for the moon. So teachings, practices, whatever, pointing to where consciousness is, but you can't take that thing as the concrete form and get involved in that. And so that's true then of also this system of chakras, which is beautifully elegant in describing that. And people can get involved in it in, in, in various ways and to various degrees. Uh, but if you look at it just in terms of, you know, each of the chakras is associated with an element. And so when you start out with um, the Sahasrara, there's the infinite transcendent. Uh, then when you get down uh, to Ajna chakra, well, that's not exactly an element. That's where mind, sort of individualized consciousness comes in. And so now you have the infinite starting to contract and take on a finite form. And we wouldn't say mind has the same form or properties that you know the body has or the computer you're looking at or whatever. It's not that defined, but it's more defined than the infinite, the boundless, because now it's bound, now it's contracted, now it has limitations to it. And then out of that, uh, and this process of the descent of Shakti, of pure consciousness through the chakras and the creation of each level as it goes, is called involution. It's sort of the involving of consciousness in the manifestation of, of form. So then when you, when you go from the Ajna chakra to the Vishuddha chakra, well, now the Vishuddha chakra is, uh, is the element of, of space sometimes called ether. 
so it's more concrete than mind, uh, but still pretty subtle. Uh, when you get to the heart chakra, now that's considered the element of air. So air has more definition. You can feel the wind, you can't feel space. Um, so it has more definition to it, more form, it's more contracted. Uh, and out of that, then it descends further. And when you get to the Manipura chakra, you get to fire. Um, and that's the element that's seen to be represented by that level of manifestation. It contracts further, becomes in the Swadhisthana chakra, water, the element of water. Uh, until finally you get to the Muladhara chakra and the element, the grossest form, earth. Important to realize, you're still in the subtle body, so none of these have a physical form yet. Uh, we're still on the subtle uh, essence of each of these planes, each of these elements uh, that uh, is being represented by this involution uh, and form assuming nature of Shakti. And Does this mean that even a, a disembodied soul, such as between lifetimes or something, would have all these chakras intact um, without a physical body? Uh, theoretically, yeah, there would still be in, in, a, in the subtle seed form, in the tattva form, mm -hmm. uh, that as long as, um, you know, in a sense, once you get below the causal body, and this is here, in a sense, how um, that map of the causal body, the subtle body, and the physical body overlays with the chakras, um, and is also a way of talking about how does creation happen. And one thing is important to understand is, so the Eastern traditions, their paradigm for looking at how creation occurs is radically different than the Western scientific materialist tradition, which forms a lot of the basis of our, our thoughts and, and uh, ways of understanding the world. So a materialist philosophy looks for material causes to explain the subtle. So consciousness is an artifact of neurons firing. So you have concrete brain cells firing and consciousness pro is produced. Now, the Eastern tradition say, no, no, it's the other way around. The subtle creates the gross. It's consciousness that creates a body um, and a brain in order to manifest its qualities of consciousness. And that whole process of involution of going through the chakras and understanding how it's manifesting things at different levels is that understanding of how does the subtle and the most radically subtle the infinite the sahasra that boundless energy go into becoming something as concrete as our hand or the chair that we're sitting in so you just mentioned that you know you went through all the chakras and you mentioned that you know at that stage that you had discussed, the, the physical body still hasn't come into the picture. So at, at what point and how does the physical body come into the picture and and kind of become associated with these different chakras? Well, there it has to do with you know, what's, what's coming in uh, when we're, uh, our, car our karma, the, the residue of our past actions, uh, are, uh, are helping to shape what's the body uh, that we're going to take in this lifetime. Mm -hmm. And how, how is that form going to manifest? And so on a subtler level, it's just the seeds of that uh, that are going to produce that. If it happens to be that seed is uh, connected to that we're going to be manifesting a human body in the next lifetime, 
then that seed will come and unfold as that human body. Uh, we might not come back as a human body. We might come back as a different form. Uh, Do animal bodies have all the, all the chakras too? You know, I've never looked into that. So I don't know uh, how many chakras or what their subtle body physiology is. Mm. Okay, just curious. Yeah. Um, all right, so then at some point, the whole process begins to go in reverse, so to speak, in terms of awakening to higher and higher centers within the body and eventually back up to the um, Sahasra. Is, is this the appropriate time to touch upon that? Sure. And, and what happens with... Uh, it's, it's not a mistake that the Shakti has created this physical form to evolve and experience its own unfolding of creativity and to explore the universe of limitation, the, lim the, the universe of form, the universe of a body, of intentions. Um, in, in the yogic tradition, this, this realm is called karma bhumi. Um, it's, the, it's the realm of coming to know very clearly the laws of cause and effect and how we create reality and how what we're creating or putting out on more and more subtle levels comes back to us and shapes our experience. And so it's seen as, and can be experienced as, across lifetimes, we're evolving and evolving to greater consciousness. And it comes to a point where there's some, in a sense, uh, metaphorically, a level of ripening, a level of readiness, where uh, that journey, uh, that process of evolution and exploration of what it means to be everything, you know, from the victim to the perpetrator, the lover to the beloved, the rejected, the accepted, the embraced, everything um, is, is part of that exploration of consciousness. Uh, and it's why we can have residues of memories like that that can go back uh, into past lifetimes. But there does come a point where evolution in our consciousness comes to that readiness and it's going, you know, I remember something bigger and better than this, something more. Um, and there begins to be this longing uh, to know, to go beyond just the things that are offered to us by our culture, uh, by our families, by our peers, whatever it is. Uh, there becomes this innate longing. And in a sense, that longing is part of that initial phase of, of awakening because it's, it's spurred by there's more than just this material world. There's yeah. more than just emotional satisfaction. Uh, people may, you know, have uh, in intuitions. They might have peak experiences. They may have had something happen in a dream. Uh, those initial phases of awakening to something that transcends ordinary reality, we're equipped to know that. It's our birthright to know that. And at some point, uh, we're summoned by our own nature, by our own consciousness, to shift into into knowing on that level. Would you agree that that longing is a sort of an evolved form of the, the basic driver of all desires? I mean, I long to have that sports car, or I long to have that partner, or whatever. And you get those things, and well, now I long for something else, because that didn't do it for me. But the uh, this longing you just referred to is sort of like you've you've tried all that stuff, so to speak, and and you sudden and you somehow realize that the fulfillment of all longings is to be found 
within and not in outer objects. Right, yeah. right. And it's, it's that evolution to discover that uh, and also be able to look back and see. And this is, you know, this is the, the nature of that evolution when we're entering those domains. We begin to see that and, and look compassionately at all, all beings because all longing, all desire at, at root is the, the desire to know the one. Uh, and instead of uh, being confused by the reflection of that one uh, in its ephemeral nature as being associated with the possession of this object uh, of desire, that's when we start to look beyond that. I think that the ideas you're expressing are probably, can probably be found in many traditions, but um, are, are you specifically expressing the philosophy of Kashmir Shaivism here? Well, I think Kashmir Shaivism gives some of the, the clearest expression of that. Yeah. But to me, I, I always look to the mystics mm -hmm. of traditions because they were the knowers. Uh, and so I look to the mystics, the Christian mystics, the Sufi mystics, uh, the poet saints, because their expressions, that's what's reflected in it. It's that same sense of when you start to move into that, you're going, wait a minute, this, the divine is everywhere. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it's in everything. Everything I long for uh, is there. And all I was doing was confusing this reflection, this momentary appearance and illusion that it took this other form uh, and wanting to possess that in some way. Mm. Here's a thing you quoted from the Gnostic Jesus. The kingdom of God is spread upon the earth and men do not see it. Uh, yeah. All right, so Kundalini starts awakening, and for you, I guess, it's been a pretty blissful process for the most part. You know, all kinds of wonderful experiences and, you know, revelations and cognitions and openings and awakenings, and uh, have you ever had a, a rough time of it? I mean, I mean, I'm in touch with a couple of people, I have been, who are basically completely incapacitated by mm -hmm. a kundalini awakening to the point where they can't even function or get out of bed or anything. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a pretty horrific situation. And you do hear these scare stories about kundalini. Um, mm -hmm. So has your experience always been pretty blissful? And, and did it reach some kind of conclusion? Do you feel like you're fully cooked in this respect? Somebody sent me an email. They said, well, they wanted to know whether you have gone through this whole thing yourself. And if not, how can you help anybody if you haven't been through the whole thing start to finish? And uh, she mentioned that uh, Papaji once said that he'll be sort of dealing with that energy. He said the Kundalini would dog him to his dying day. <laughs> so it, it would almost seem that ev even if you're in, enlightened, there's going to be a continuous dealing with this energy. So p please comment on all that. Okay. That's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I was listening to Obama's press conference yesterday, and, and Peter Alexander asked him this long three- or four-part question, and Obama <laughs> said, I must be getting old. I really can't deal with these multi-part questions anymore. <laughs> so... Yes, uh, Kundalini has uh, you know, unfolded and has become my living reality. And I would never, I, would, I, I don't know Papaji or what his experience was, uh, but 
to me to be in my beloved's embrace and the dance of life for as long as life unfolds in this form, that's my experience. Uh, so my experience is that the continuous becoming, the continuous creativity, uh, the Shakti of the universe, that's what it unfolds. And that's what she keeps revealing, that every facet, everything that appears is literally a face of the divine. And that's the continued unfolding. Have there been tough times? There have been very challenging times. There have been painful times. There's been physical pain. There's been emotional pain. There have been times when I wondered, how am I going to function trying to carry um, the experiences? Times when I've had to just put experiences aside, in a sense, and sort of have a safe container within myself uh, and go on with getting absorbed in, you know, writing my PhD thesis. Uh, you know, one of the things I write about in the book, The Soul's Journey, uh, was a set of experiences that unfolded uh, of Shakti, giving me the ex direct experience of moving in that whole evolutionary pattern. So involution is the experience of Shakti taking on form through the chakras. Evolution is the evolution of consciousness up through that, those symbolic stages back to knowing the infinite as yourself. Um, and and all of the universe, all of what we perceive as that one, uh, as our own self. And when I had that experience, uh, I had, was in the midst of writing a dissertation and set aside some time to kind of create a personal retreat for myself to dive into that level of knowing, because I didn't want to just be writing uh, a dissertation. My my doctoral research was on Kundalini and and the. The, the various dimensions of transformation that happen to people who have been engaged in kundalini practices uh, and awakening for 10 or more years. So having that experience, it was so uh, overwhelming in certain ways. Uh, and though it was probably the, the greatest fruit of my research, it also didn't have any place in academic writing uh, and wasn't something that I could then put into a research. Uh, paper. So I had to have a way of trying to contain that and go, no, but I still have to write, you know, on in a dissertation in an abstract form about these things. Uh, and so there's there are various demands that happen for many people. How do we contain it? How do we move through it? What's happening with the body when it's working on an area and it's horrifically painful uh, and difficult moving through uh, ways that the, the Shakti is trying to transform the physical body and transform the subtle body so that they become instruments both of knowing and participating in that divine creation and being able to experience it in their own way. I mean, the body wants to know the, the bliss of the infinite in the way the body can. Uh, the mind, our consciousness, even as a limited form, uh, wants to know the, the ecstasy, the rapture, the love, that comes through the divine and the energy that's remaking uh, the entire body and physical body as an instrument of the divine for both knowing, revealing, participating. That kind of process, you know, the yogis knew it was kind of a ruthless process. Uh, and so very often, you know, Kundalini was sought after, but only after many kind of purificatory processes were done and and deep practices were done to help 
really set the stage for a smoother awakening. But now people are having spontaneous awakenings. And it's also, it, it winds up being that, you know, even in, in the yoga literature, Kundalini awakening didn't mean you got enlightened and experienced that infinite divine in one lifetime. Uh, it could be several lifetimes that it's going to evolve through. And the forms that you will take will evolve with that. But some of those initial phases of awakening can be quite challenging. So our, our ordinary consciousness is very, uh, it's limited to this one lifetime perspective. Uh, and consciousness itself isn't. Not, not in the least. And Kundalini isn't, not in the least. Uh, she sees, I'm going to set you free. Does that mean I'm going to obey cultural bounds? Not necessarily. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, uh, the friend of mine who asked that question that I just read, um, you know, I, I interviewed a guy a few weeks ago, Harry Alto, I've interviewed him a few times, and he's basically had a smooth ride, pretty, you know, awakened as a child and um, just cruising along ever since for decades. Um, he had a brief period in his 20s where he lost pure consciousness for about 15 seconds. He said it was the most horrible experience of his life, but he regained it. I think something was just showing him the contrast, you know. But she doubts that he could really be awake because he never went through hell. You know, he never, right. went, never went through the crucible that um, so many people go through. But from what you just said, previous lifetimes and so on, maybe he did all that and just had a little right. remnant to deal with when he came in here. Well, and I, I don't know him, I don't know his evolutionary process, but I sure. think what, what also unfolds over lifetimes, and you can certainly see this in, you know, in, a, in a classic form with Buddha, uh, Buddha's evolution, even as a, a Buddha trying to evolve a form that would hold Buddha consciousness, went through lifetimes. Mm -hmm. And and there may be a lifetime where we're less aware of the painful memories of, of having incarnated in challenging forms, but they come back in part. My belief is, I mean, my experience is that the pain that we experience, uh, as ephemeral as it is, as on one level completely illusory, um, uh, from the from the level of the absolute, there's there is none. But from the level of the conventional mind, the, the individual contracted nature of, of being, pain is very real. And to have that direct knowing and recollection of that, uh, to me is what informs my life also with compassion. Uh, and that, you know, I see there's many times my body has gone through tremendous pain. Still does, frankly. I mean. Uh, there are many kinds of things that occur physically. They don't define who I am. They don't limit my consciousness in the least. But they also keep the door open to know that level of pain and suffering that beings, all beings, uh, go through is part of what makes us uh, aware and connect with a deep compassion. Now, to me, the, the, the exalted states are states of profound and boundless compassion, profound love, profound kindness. Um, uh, that's what that's what marks our um, uh, the, the flow of the the real essential nature of Shakti um, as this loving presence that embraces all and both sees uh, the the pain and the suffering and offers a way to be free of it. It's like the archetype of Tara. 
or Kuan Yin that hears the suffering of all beings and reaches out to, to draw us past that. When you yourself go through painful and uncomfortable things even now, <clears throat> do you immediately sort of realize, well, that there's just the vehicles being further purified. That's what's going on. So, and you just grin and bear it? Yeah, I mean, I, I know that this is, this is the nature of the body. You know, there are certain forms, when, even when Buddha talked about getting free of suffering, it didn't mean that, you know, if you smacked your leg, it wasn't going to hurt. Right. That's not the level of freedom of suffering that we're talking about. Uh, and so when my body, my body, it was a vehicle in this lifetime, and it came in with its karmas. And it has, you know, nearly died a couple of times or more. Uh, it's gone through various, you know, injuries and surgeries and these kinds of things. Uh, and some of them I felt, you know, directly just the hand of grace, like early on, uh, reach in and carry me through that. And now it's, that's, that's what carries me through every moment. Yeah. There's an interesting passage in your book here. You say, there have been approaches in the yogic traditions that try to dominate kundalini, to forcefully push kundalini to do this or that by prescribing endless exercises of forced breathing and body postures that are meant to bind and force kundalini to go in a direction that the yogi wants her to go. Not surprisingly, the, these are also traditions that often say kundalini is dangerous and must be controlled. Devotees that approach kundalini as the great goddess with their loving devotion have an entirely different experience. They gain her boons, her gifts of enlightenment, without having to fear what may be provoked by some forceful domineering practice. Right. So part of what I was getting at in writing about that and uh, was, it, it, I don't know if your, your audience, you are familiar with the work of Rianne Eisler, uh, but others who have written about sort of the evolution of the how the divine feminine was related to and understood from going back, you know, 30,000 years to uh, where, where and how we relate to her now. And Rianne Eisler uh, does a beautiful job, and I won't reiterate all her work, but showing how as the masculine began to dominate more and, you know, that early cultures, early human culture was dominated by the divine feminine, the great goddess and our ways of relating to the universe, to each other. Uh, she goes through and, and shows how cultures, cultures didn't have fortifications. There was a different way of relating to each other. Uh, and as the masculine began to develop, and it's a natural development of consciousness, that this way of uh, relating to the divine began to shift. And she coined the phrase the dominator mode because that was part of that kind of masculine patriarchal development of traditions and uh, patriarchal religious traditions and approaches to the divine uh, that evolved out of that. And that also touched even in the East the traditions related to Shakti and to Kundalini. And so this, this way of trying to dominate the energy diminish it and say, oh, it's just this psychophysiological energy or it's just this energy that the yogi has to prod and force into awakening and then has to forcefully guide and direct uh, reflects that kind of dominator mode of consciousness in relationship to the divine feminine. Mm -hmm. And uh, especially, you know, my experiences directly and, and I was you know, delighted with Muktananda's way of teaching it also was completely different. It was really honoring 
her as the as the great goddess. And there was a, I, I wrote in, in the Soul's Journey a, a story about how there was a very famous author came to see Muktananda, and he had written about Kundalini and his experiences her her as being fairly mundane and ordinary. And he was at the ashram. This was up in South Fallsburg, and I was there at the time. And Muktananda had a uh, kind of a reception room, it would be called the darshan room, but it was the, this reception room where we would meet with people and talk with them more individually. And this author was sitting outside waiting for his turn to go in and, and see Muktananda. And as he was sitting there, he had this vision of the goddess Kundalini walking by to go in. And she was resplendent. She was, she was the great goddess. Jewels, beautiful sari, gold, radiant beyond belief. And he was, he was bowled over. And finally his turn came to go inside and he, he went inside and he was actually said, he was looking around to see if she was still there. And uh, he bowed to Muktananda and said, you know, I had this experience waiting for you of seeing the great, you know, the goddess Kundalini coming in and she was magnificent. Yet to me, she just appears sort of ordinary and mundane and didn't inspire anything like that. How can that be? And Muktananda looked at him and said simply, because I worship her. Yeah, that's beautiful. I knew the whole story from reading yeah. your book, but I was enjoying hearing you tell it. Um, <clears throat> which brings up an interesting point in, in terms of the heart, I suppose, and, and devotional qualities um, being valuable on the spiritual path. And, and that's not always the case. I mean, a lot of times spiritual paths and teachers are kind of dry and, and, and not a lot of that dimension. I mean, from what you've been saying the last few minutes, we could almost roughly categorize spiritual practices or, or approaches in terms of like a hyper-masculine and, uh, versus a feminine, and the, the former being, you know, effortful and arduous and controlling and, and so on and so forth, and the latter sort of being more, having more qualities of surrender and devotion and, and cooperation with, with the divine intelligence rather than trying to dominate it in some way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, one of the, I'm sure you're familiar with this, but one of the beautiful ways that um, the yoga tradition uh, has helped to delineate the different paths, the different forms of yoga. Mm -hmm. And so part of that has to do with people's temperaments. Yeah. And so a, a thinking type might be more of a jnana yoga and approach to coming to know the infinite through the contemplation of not this, not this, and neti neti, and who am I? And use the, the power of viveka, of discrimination, to uh, finally differentiate what's the nature of the infinite that's present at all times and the ephemeral constructed nature of the ego and the personality. Uh, whereas a bhakta, you know, approaches through feeling and emotion and love. Uh, but it's interesting because whichever approach one takes, one sort of ends up with both, at least in terms of many historical yes. examples, you know. Right. Guys like Shankar became great devotees and there have been great bhaktas who have been great jnanis also, you know, who've just right. had this profound wisdom that they could articulate and so on. Like, yeah. like Trotakacharya, who was Shankara's right. disciple, he was a, a, a bhakta basically, but right. he ended up with this profound wisdom and Shankara made him his principal disciple. Yeah, and Shankaracharya, once, once he, you know, in writing the Sundari Lahari, you know, then recognized that 
Kundalini was the basis of all the realization, that it was that power of the infinite uh, that is the power to know all those dimensions, all those facets. Mm. So the individual mind uh, gets, you know, sort of a page by page, a snapshot by snapshot of the infinite and can mistake the part for the whole. Whereas when we enter into that consciousness, we see the, the indivisible unity of the knowing, the feeling, the consciousness, the, the love, the compassion, that's always completely present in their fullness all the time. With all this talk that we've been doing about, you know, practices and progress and lifetimes and, you know, we, we make it sound like a fairly long-term enterprise. Um, what do you make of these people who are kind of popular these days, some of them who say things like, you're already enlightened, you know, just kind of accept that and you don't need to do practices. Practices imply a practicer and you're just reinforcing duality and so on. Mm -hmm. what, what do you make of that whole attitude? Uh, there are times when cutting through the duality, that, that's what I hear is important. And they may or may not be aware of how many lifetimes it took for them to get to that time uh, and to that perspective and that understanding. Uh, it doesn't change that they still went through that process uh, and that they're reaching out. You know, in, in the Shaivite tradition, uh, there's a, there's a the part of the tradition is looking at uh, what are called the upayas. You're familiar with the word upayas? Uh, Upaya means means. Means, yeah. means right. And so, um, so when you look at, say, the Shiva Sutras, one of the principal texts of Kashmir Shaivism, and, and this, is, this is true across that tradition, but upaya means that you, you as, a, uh, as a seeker, you want to engage in the level of means that's appropriate to your level of understanding and practice and consciousness. And so there are means that are, if we're in a, in a dualistic state, there are means uh, like devotional practices, a lot of what goes as yoga, hatha yoga, um, ways of even doing mantra yoga, different practices that are aimed at, there's a sense of there's, there's the practicer, there's the practice, and there's the aim of the practice. And these things are all separate. It's, we're in this, this dualistic separated consciousness. And there are practices that are trying to help ease our way out of that illusion uh, to enter unity consciousness. And, but they're engaging and they're, they're helpful at that stage. And then there's what that could, could be called beta upaya. Uh, beta means different, separate. Then there's a sort of the next stage, uh, what's called beta a beta. Uh, sort of, it's, you're, you're in a state where you're kind of mixed. You sort of get a sense of the unity and sometimes you get an intuition or a feeling of that, but you still kind of get caught up in duality. Um, your mind is sort of teetering on the edge and there are practices. There are shaktupaya practices aimed at just helping that movement now shift. They're not as gross as, you know, you're going to wave an RT tray and do puja to some external form because now you've started to merge with that. You've started to reap the rewards of that outer practice of becoming united with, with that one that you were approaching with devotion. So that's a different level of practice. Uh, and then Abedupaya, where, where, where you're just about there, or Shambhavupaya, where you're just 
really your consciousness is right on the edge there's the veil is thinner than smoke um, well if you did something as gross as even thinking about union you'd be back down into a different upaya and so the practices that are understood on that level are much more subtle much more refined um, and so when a teacher presents a practice, uh, even if it's the practice of no practice, just let go of duality, there you are. Well, if you're in that, right on that edge, that's a perfect message. Just let it go and you'll be there. But if you're really caught up in another level, that may be out of reach. Yeah. Not because it's not true, but because what you're identified with means, oh, I need the shoehorn to help prime me out of this, you know? That's how I look at that. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. And there are some teachers around who are kind of one size fits all, and, and uh, people, you know, they work for some people, others get frustrated. But um, the, the really great ones, like Ramana Maharshi, really seem to be able to tune into the level of development of whoever came and you know, advocate or encourage them to do something appropriate for them. Right. And it might, it might change. As a matter of fact, I mean, even the notion of, you say somewhere in your writings about you know, having the discrimination to know when to leave a teacher. It might be that a, a, a teacher is completely appropriate for you up to a certain point, and then mm -hmm. at a certain point, well, you know, you've kind of outgrown. It's, it's necessary for, to go from high school to college or grammar school right. to high school or something to, to move on. At one point in your book, you wrote, the ancient text, the Kularnava Tantra, Kularnava states, Tantra, yeah. uh, how do you pronounce it? Kularnava. Kularnava Tantra states that without Shaktipat, there is no liberation or self-realization. The descent of grace may happen spontaneously or unexpectedly, or through the power of a master of genuine attainment. In some cases, Shaktipat is received through contact with a mystic guide who appears in one's dreams or meditation. Often it is awakened through a mantra or the practices learned from an accomplished spiritual teacher. Also, it may have been awakened in a past life and is continuing to unfold in this life. So, Muktananda was famous for doing Shaktipat, kind of popularized the term in a way, and uh, he did it with a peacock feather, as I recall. That was one way. That was one way. And you notice a picture of Ama over my shoulder here. She hugs right. people, and that's, that's a right. form of Shaktipat. Let's talk a little bit about Shaktipat. You, you basically said here that it's essential. There's no liberation or self-realization without it. So let's talk about what it is. So Shaktipat literally means descent of Shakti, descent of the power of consciousness to know itself. And it's, you know, it's simply a way of saying that the ego mind can't get there on its own. There is no limit to the number of different ways Shaktipat can happen. And so that power of grace, that power of the infinite, uh, that bestows grace, it's called, it's called Shaktipat. You know, it wasn't called Muktananda Pat or Amapat, <laughs> it's called Shaktipat. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so Shakti is that universal power of, uh, that awakens us, that can take us beyond the confines of the finite. And part of way, you can understand why it's said to be absolutely necessary is the the power so when we we're talking about that map that said you know causal body uh, subtle body physical body so 
some people are familiar with that. Causal. How does the causal body come to be? And why is it caused, called causal? So that's the first shift from universal infinite consciousness beginning to take on or set the stage for taking on form. The state of consciousness that goes with the causal body, because each of those bodies has a state of consciousness that goes with it. The state of consciousness, uh, the yogis call it deep sleep, which is the continuous awareness of nothingness. It's the black void. It's called causal because it's the state of where Shakti of its own free will has negated the awareness of its infinitude and its unity with all that is. In that negation comes the black veil of void. It is what creates that. Shakti has created that. That sets the stage then for consciousness then contracting further and, and here you, you mean literal sleep like we do at night. You don't just mean right. this metaphorical sleep of ignorance or something, but sleep. No. Well, well, it's also, avidya would also be a way of talking about it, of primal ignorance. The primal uh, root cause of suffering is seen as avidya. Avidya, it means not knowing your unity. Right. But that's not an accident. That wasn't some other force outside of the divine imposed that. That was the Shakti going, well, in order for me to play in as, as a finite domain, I have to not know. I have to, yeah. I have to occlude that. Hide and seek. I have to hide that behind the, the curtain for a bit. Yeah. All right? So if Shakti is the one that created that, who's going to uncreate that? You know? Well, Shaktipat. So that's what that is. That Shaktipat is the meaning that it's the influx of the power to awaken and know itself in its magnificence, its infinitude again. So Shaktipat is that influx of, of consciousness beyond just the ordinary mind that allows us to experience what we, what we are in our fullness. Because the ordinary mind is the part. The part can't know the whole. The wave doesn't know the ocean, it's part of the ocean. So Shaktipat is just a way of talking about uh, that it's that influx of consciousness that then can undo that primal level of, of ignorance, of not knowing, that was part of the creation of individuality, of, the, of a universal form. Okay. And that's why there's no limitation on how Shaktipat can happen. You can say, well, it can happen in a dream, it can happen spontaneously, it can happen in a past life, it can happen because of a practice, it can happen, you know, connected to uh, a being through whom Shakti flows and chooses the, to flow through that conduit. Um, to me, it's, I, I'm always um, clear about talking about it in that way, that individuals can be a conduit. You know, if you're dying of thirst, and you go to the water fountain and you get a drink of water and you go, oh, that's so good. You don't kiss the fountain and stay in hanging out by the fountain. Um, it was the water that quenched your thirst. So understanding that as there are forms through which this power flows so magnificently, oh, we can revere and respect them, but it's the power of consciousness, this power of grace uh, that reveals that within ourselves that we really, truly honor and revere. Nice. Um, a question came in from Dan in London. Um, he, uh, it's a little long, but Dan always asks good questions. So here, here we go. Uh, 
while doing a TM practice, Transcendental Meditation, and being barely aware of my body, I suddenly had a thought that I needed to let go of all the attachments that I have to my family. Following this, I suddenly had an explosion of energy at the bottom of my spine. The energy rose about halfway up my spine and was very intense. It was kind of accompanied by bits of my life flashing through my mind and somehow deciding to let go of things. Once the energy reached about halfway up my spine, it stopped and gradually subsided. Over the next couple of weeks, I had back pain, but that, was gradually, that gradually went. This happened about two years ago. I did have lots of other experience of very strong energies previous to this while asleep, but this was the only uh, time it happened while awake, and it was the only time it fitted the traditional description happening from the bottom of the spine and mm-hmm. with such ferocity. These kinds of energetic experiences have, not, have now not happened for a while. Do you have any advice on this, or can you recommend a practice perhaps to supplement TM? Right. So... So what uh, what he's talking about is the experience of uh, in sort of the the language of a Kundalini tradition, we would talk about kriyas. Mm-hmm. Kriya means movement of. So a kriya is a movement of the energy, the shakti, the power of consciousness, and those kriyas can occur on the the physical level. So they can be a part of the physical body, and you can literally get physical movements. Uh, you can get people going into spontaneous hatha yoga postures. Uh, it's understood that most of the, uh, or all of the hatha yoga asanas, postures, were first uh, seen as as a result of kriyas, that people go into that and the shakti is bringing them into that that kind of movement. And then it was sort of codified and systematized with the notion that if you practice that, you would both be helping to purify the physical and subtle body and set the stage for that kind of expansion and awakening. Kriyas can happen on a subtle body level where there are energetic movements, flashes of light, sounds, uh, energy movement, uh, all kinds of things. Anything that's within the domain of the mind can be subject to uh, or experienced in some way as a Kriya moving through the through consciousness. and. There are practices that you can do to help support that, to support that under that that energetic flow, and that can be things including practices like hatha yoga, uh, tai chi. You know, many of these practices. Chi is another word of pr- like prana uh, for a manifestation of the the energy of kundalini. So there can be ways of of working with that. Also, ways of using with a, another principal set of forms for uh, engaging Shakti in its more and more expansive nature is mantra. Uh, the very basis of mantra, all mantra arises out of Kundalini. Kundalini is what formed uh, the basis of mantra. And so when you're engaging in mantra on different levels, you're engaging in Shakti. So deepening one's, <clears throat> excuse me, deepening one's understanding of that helps. Uh, so that can be, you know, reading and studying about it. I write a lot about it in, in a couple of my books about the nature of mantra. Um, there are mantras that come from traditions that are infused with shakti. So they were known as a real vehicle for awakening shakti, as opposed to a mantra that might be more aimed at focusing or purifying a certain part of the body or doing some other kind of action. So being engaged in mantra on different levels. 
uh, is a very profound and powerful set of practices. And that would be congruent because essentially TM was making use of bija mantras as a way of doing that. Uh, and so I've worked with a lot of TM uh, practitioners and, and teachers who have come to programs and they very much understood and resonated with that and then were able to sense that, you know, the Shakti, the power that came through mantras that were given to me to pass on uh, as Shakti mantras. So those kinds of ways of exploring it um, and shifting that understanding. So part of way I read what happened with him when uh, he opened the door of letting go of things about life. That's letting go of ways that we're identifying, sort of binding our energy, not literally throwing them away because you continue to live your life and have those relationships, but it opens a door. So what are the ways that in even in the midst of everyday practice, do you let go of those things? What what are the ways that even as you hold the mantra, people can hold the mantra in a limiting way because their understanding of mantra is limited. And in a sense, they're closing the door to all the Shakti, all the power of consciousness that's inherent in that mantra that can take them beyond that, that could open their heart to the, the boundless love that's present there, or the, the consciousness that suffuses their, uh, their life. Good. So Dan's experience is kind of a nice one. And um, I understand that at, at one point you were overseeing the, the clinic or something in Ganeshpuri, India, Muktananda's mm -hmm. ashram there, and that, you know, there was a freak out a minute basically going on with people, you know, just uh, being blasted by, by the Shakti they were, that was awakening in them. And I alluded earlier to a couple people who have been in touch with me who are, who are really going through a rough time. You know, basically their lives are on hold while they they suffer intensely, right. um, and uh, who knows how long it's going to last or how it's going to end up. Right. So, you know, what measures did you use in Ganeshpuri? What what have you learned since then? What right. would you offer people who are undergoing some kind of Kundalini process, or at least they think it's a Kundalini process, right. and that's worth touching upon too. You know, perhaps it could be something else, and they should see a doctor. But but the flip side of that is, if it is a Kundalini process, and you go to see a doctor chances are that doctor is going to completely misunderstand it and put you on mm -hmm. Thorazine or something, and that's not mm -hmm. going to be helpful. So mm -hmm. um, how do you deal with people who are rather, having rather severe uh, symptoms of Kundalini right. awakening? How right. can you help them? Right. Uh, well, and, and that's a lot of what the, the book Awakening Kundalini, The Path to Radical Freedom, I go into how what's an integrative kind of holistic perspective on working with things. Um, Fortunately, in, in Baba's ashram in Ganeshpur, there weren't freakouts a minute. There were, there were some, uh, but most people were having, even if they were intense experiences, uh, the context, the practices, the discipline, the grace of the, the master really held that. Good. And so it was, it was, you know, here and there, there were people who needed some extraordinary measures, uh, and we were there to help them. Yeah. So working with that, yeah, part of that is having a context that really helps. And that's part of what I write about in the Awakening Kundalini book is uh, somebody who's going through challenging processes. Well, there can be numerous things going on. There can be genuinely uh, medical, uh, physiological uh, disorders that are being worked through karmically. And they can't just be dismissed as Kundalini. Uh, a person might need uh, I've seen people need anything from endocrine 
therapies and, and, and found to be deficient in certain hormones uh, that were being dismissed as kundalini. No, that was ending. That didn't mean it all got reduced to that medical thing. So, you, so Western medicine can be reductionistic and that does that violates a person's sense of the deep meaningful nature of this spiritual process that's unfolding and the symptoms can be uh, from a medical perspective uh, then looked at as just you know just the symptoms on a physiological or psychological level so it's very helpful to work with people who have some kind of understanding but even if not if you need medical help you might you know really need to see a doctor and be able to work with how do you present enough of the symptoms to get help without trying to get them to understand kundalini yeah do you um, call i mean do you consult with people here and there or even over skype yeah. for long distance who are going through yeah. stuff and do you ever like can you know do a three-way with the, the person and their doctor trying to right. educate the doctor a bit about what they might be going through right I've never, I've never done a three-way with a, you know, an additional consultant or physician. I'm often trying to help people find uh, who might be able to be a consultant to work with. And there are times, and, and it's by no means that every time, you know, somebody, um, if they're having, if their mind really is being overwhelmed by the content that's being stirred by Shakti, uh, they, there are instances where people benefit by using medications that are used within psychiatry, either short term or even long term. Mm -hmm. There were individuals at the ashram in Ganeshpuri who had been uh, early on in their lives diagnosed with schizophrenia. That was part of their karma. Uh, without the medications that empowered them to uh, live a much more normal life, they would have been psychotic. And Bobby used to say very clearly, the same Shakti that takes the form in the universe is taking you in the form of the medication uh, to help you through this. Mm -hmm. So take your medication. Uh, he never saw medication as adverse to the processes of Shakti uh, and the unfolding of consciousness. So Although it could be, it was, I mean, if it were overdose. I mean, you know, you could. Right, if it was badly managed. Heavily dose somebody it, with Thorazine or something, and you're basically just suppressing right. an energy that needs to be worked through in a, in a more intelligent way. Right. Yeah. Right. But that's that would be to me mismanagement, not yeah. proper management. Huh. Speaking of schizophrenics, you had a great line from Lily Tomlin. He said, uh, "Lily said when when you talk to God, it's prayer, but when God talks back, you're labeled a schizophrenic." Right, right, <laughs> right. <laughs> and what does that say about our relationship to God? <laughs> yeah. Huh. Well, I don't know. I, hopefully, we've done justice to that. Maybe there will be some questions, or you yeah. know, people can read your book and and you know look in greater detail into what, what you offer. But I just well, have this. I talk, I, yeah, part, I mean, part of what I talk about is also there's you know those are sort of the extremes. Yeah. Um, and there are many people who just benefit from some additional support uh, along the way. That's why Buddha characterized it very beautifully in terms of looking at the three jewels that help support a person doing their practices yeah and the the three jewels are like the you know the three legs of a stool you know with only two or one you can't stand on it but with all three you've got them and and that's a you know a competent teacher uh that's a set of the the teachings and practices and a community the sangha that buddha talked about and so having people to relate to and i think you know i, I think in, in part that's a great 
thing that you do as a service is trying to help create a sangha, um, albeit a virtual one or, or you know through through the technology, but offering people ways to be able to relate and connect and understand how do we get support for this and what might a um, massage therapist help or or a restorative yoga teacher help with or uh, a Jungian psychologist in working with dreams and archetypes help with that that all of these can be supports in that unfolding that unique unfolding because this is part of what was always um, sought after about Kundalini is that Rather than uh, you know hatha yoga as a path, as a path, and you learn 84 asanas and you do this kind of pranayama and you do this kind of thing, um, Kundalini was the process that when it's awakened, it begins to unfold a very unique sadhana for you, mm. and that's that changes, it shifts, and demands a subtlety and demands this ability to uh, be attuned to and dance with the energy. Uh, the diet that's that's right for you at one point might be a different at another time. Uh, the kinds of exercises, uh, uh, practices that you do at one point might be evolved into something else at another time that supports that unfolding uh, and expansiveness of consciousness and so that you really get to, to live that extraordinary informed life. Yeah. And I think just a, a little bit of knowledge can go a long way. I mean, when I first ha started having some kundalini symptoms, I guess they were, it was like after my first one-month meditation course, and I, I was, remember sitting on a couch in a friend's living room, and my face started to go through all these involuntary contortions and grimaces mm -hmm. and weird things. And then my head started to go like this, you know. And mm -hmm. at the time, I was driving an ice cream truck, and it got so... If whenever I sat still, I'd start to jerk around, and mm -hmm. like I came to a stop sign in my ice cream truck, I started to jerk around. <laughs> um, but I understood what was going on. You know, it's like right, okay, right. something good is happening here. I'm just going to ride right. this out, and you know, right. after a while, it, it subsided and diminished. And there have been various things over the years, but but you know, if I hadn't known, had some sense of what that was, I might have been totally freaked out. Thought I was developing some kind of neurological condition or something. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. So, you know, that's why I think it's good that we're having these kinds of conversations and that knowledge of this stuff be, is more widely disseminated. Right, right. Yeah. Okay. You've sort of talked about the chakras and... Just a quick question. A little bit out of context. You know, you mentioned the Shushumna Nadi, and then there's the Ida and the Pingala mm -hmm. that are said to go around the Shushumna Nadi. And some people say that the, the what is it called, the Catechus or Kadeus or something in the... Caduceus, the, yeah. Caduceus, and, you know, the symbol of the AMA is, is actually representative of that, right. the, the snake coiling around mm -hmm. a, a pillar or something. But again, the Shushumna Nadi, which... You hear descriptions of it, and it's actually, they give it some physical dimension, how, how small it is, but it's not something any physiologist has ever found. So I, I presume that despite the fact that it's been described as having a certain size or width, uh, it's subtle. It's not, it's right. not some little tube going up your spine. Right, right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, it's again, part of the, the subtle body and the subtle physiology, and it's the that channel that connects the the infinite from the Sahasrara all the way through to the, the finite domain of the Muladhara. Mm -hmm. And so it's also a way of saying 
that that connection on a subtle body level is there energetically and that it's always resounding with the sound of om that om resounds within um, that channel continuously meaning that that universal presence of consciousness that throbbing vibration uh, infuses all levels of manifestation and and can be accessed through all levels of manifestation Here's a passage from your book I want to read related to this. You said the, the Kundalini moves through the Shashimna Nadi, erasing the impressions stored there and releasing the energy bound up in those impressions. This extraordinary purification process then releases us from the patterns in our lives created by those impressions. Secondly, she opens up states of consciousness that give us access to unbounded awareness, awareness of the transcendent self, what some call God consciousness. In order for that state of unity consciousness to become stable and fully manifest in the mind, body, and actions of the individual, the Shashimna Nadi and all the lesser Nadis must be purified, cleansed of impressions and blocks that contract or restrict consciousness to the confines of ordinary human experience. So these impressions, I would, I would conjecture and see what you think, that they, they may be gross physiological impressions, uh, such as chemical or structural imbalances, mm-hmm. but they correspondingly uh, would have a subtle counterpart that isn't gross or isn't physical mm-hmm. at all. And that, you know, you can pull a table by any one leg and the whole table will come along. So there are mm-hmm. fi- gross physical practices that can help to work out these impressions and that would probably help to work them out in the subtle. And then there are subtle practices or processes that would work them out on that level and correspondingly they would be released or resolved on the gross. Sure, yeah. yeah. And that's why, you know, s- s- various systems have developed the, the, uh, the, the ways, the movements. I mean, so Tai Chi is a system of movement, mm-hmm. but it's a psychophysiological exercise. Asanas are psychophysiological exercises. They're not just physical exercises. They're working on the physical and the subtle body. Uh, mantra as a practice goes through different levels. You know, there's the sound when you're uh, actually saying the mantra. If you're saying Om Namah Shivaya, Om Namah Shivaya, Om Namah Shivaya, now, there's a physical sound and it, it impacts the physical body. Uh, and the power of mantra literally, literally penetrates right through to the bones on that level and impacts the physical level of the body. When you start to take that to the subtle level and now you're just becoming absorbed in the, the subtle awareness of the throb and the repetition of Om Namah Shivaya, Om Namah Shivaya, without any sound. And now that that begins to take on and you begin to even hear it because it's already pre-existent. You begin to hear it repeating itself. And now it's it's working throughout the subtle body and purifying levels of that. Uh, and then it sheds physical form, subtle form entirely. It's still mantra, but now it's just this throb of consciousness. It's just this pulsation of awareness. And that's as it's beginning to cut through the causal body because causal body is the awareness of limited being as opposed to infinite being. And so the consciousness of mantra can begin to be just this throb of awareness that moves through that and then brings us back to that expansion, that absolute infinitude of our being right here, right now, that that's who we are. And that is the the source of mantra. 
there's a metaphor that you're familiar with that the TM movement used to use, this, that of an ocean, you know, and there's the surface mm-hmm. level of the waves, which would be like mm-hmm. the surface level of the mind, and then there are deeper levels to the ocean, and then mm-hmm. there's the, the sort of the ocean floor. And, and thoughts were represented as bubbles coming up through this mm-hmm. ocean, and ordinarily you don't experience the bubble till it pops on the surface, mm-hmm. but the point was that using mantra you could sort of ride the bubble down, so to speak, to, to subtler and subtler levels of it, or in the case of what we're talking about here, subtler and subtler impulses of a thought, and quieter, more refined, more, more abstract, and, until eventually thought is transcended altogether and the self is left in its you know, pure state, pure yeah. awareness. So I, I just thought I'd throw that in because it helps yeah. to illustrate the point you were making. Yeah. yeah. Any more comments on that point before I shift gears? Well, yeah. I, I don't know where you're shifting gears to, but it's. I think it's also important to to recognize. We're talking about football. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Just for a dramatic segue. <laughs> ah, the delight of football. Um, so it's important, I think, to understand also. You know that the whole understanding. You know, viewing sadhana, viewing the unfolding of consciousness uh, in, from the paradigm of Kundalini. It's just one paradigm for understanding that. Mm. It's not the, it, you don't have to know that. You don't have to know anything about chakras. You don't have to know anything about the uh, the Nadi. You don't have to know anything about that domain at all to know the infinite. This is a way of understanding. It's one map. That's what I was talking before. These are maps. But there are paths that don't use that map at all. And it's not an, it's not necessary for one to study that map and go, okay, I have to go through these stages. I have to go through these phases. I have to have these kinds of experiences. Oh, what's wrong with me? Because I get this. What's wrong with my sadhana? I'm not having this kind of experience and that kind of experience. Um, there's nothing wrong with your sadhana. That may not be what you need at all. And the unfolding of the divine, the unfolding of the infinite as your consciousness, uh, when, we're, when we're attuned to that's what's the motive force behind our uh, expansion and uh, our process of evolution. Not just the mind's desires for particular experiences or the mind's concepts of what's what's required, but starting to really deeply attune, be attuned to the movement uh, of the divine as your own self and what it's summoning, what it's calling to you, how that's going to draw you into meditation, how that's going to open up experiences of the heart that embrace your life and, and your work and these kinds of things. They may have nothing to do with chakras and nadis and all this other stuff. And they can be a real distraction, I think, for people. Yeah, but uh, if this is a valid understanding that we have chakras and nadis and shashamna and kundalini and all this stuff, then we have them whether or not we know about them, right? I mean, we all have a liver, even though we may not, you know, there might have been cultures where people didn't know they had a liver. Well, right. maybe they did, because they, but, but still they'd be dead if they didn't have the liver. <laughs> so, you know, so Zen monks and Tibetan Buddhists and Native Americans and South, South American shamans and everybody else, um, regardless of the, the understanding of their particular tradition, prob- must have, co- Chakras and, and right, but all they that's might look at it. They might look at it very differently. They might they explain might have, it differently. Right. They, yeah. they might look at it, you know, as uh, Saint Teresa of Avila and and the, the, you know the seven mansions and mm. and a process of 
of coming into the, the living presence of the divine. Mm -hmm. So the archetypes may have a different inflection to them. I see. Uh, and yes, it's going to unfold. This, so this is to me what's important about understanding Kundalini as the power of revelation and transformation and how she's going to manifest in that way. For some people, uh, they never have an experience of the divine feminine. Uh, it's, it's always is in the divine masculine. Uh, and sometimes Jung's work helps to understand, help people to understand that because sometimes it's women saying to me, I never see the goddess, but I see Shiva, I see Krishna, I see this. It's the divine masculine uh, that's taking the form of revelation. Uh, and that's their way that, the, that, that unfolding of the Shakti is manifesting for them. Uh, so all forms, that's the, that's the root understanding. All forms are her forms. All forms are born of a mother. Uh, all forms are that universal Shakti. I think it's also worth mentioning that according to one's physiological makeup, we have different proclivities in terms of what we experience. Some people just aren't very visually oriented and, and right. they're not going to have visual things Absolutely. of Shiva or, or right. Mother Divine Absolutely. or anything else. They just right. aren't wired that way. So right. if you're kind of expecting to or thinking you should, or something like that, you may, may end up frustrated. Right. Yeah, it was a very, it was a very funny thing that I was uh, sitting with uh, Muktananda one time, and it was the, the Darshan line, which was when you know thousands of people came up to greet him, and mm -hmm. and one fellow came up uh, on the line and, and bowed before him, and and was saying, you know, Baba, Baba, I want, I want to see, I want to see God, I want to see that light, I want to see those lights, you know, that people talk about, that you've written about, and Baba looked at him and goes, you want to see lights. He goes, yes, yes. And Baba pointed up, he goes, there's a crystal chandelier above. There, there, look at all those lights. <laughs> yeah. And he said, now, do you want to see God as God is revealing himself to you? Or do you want to see the form that you're looking for? Mm. There's another question that occurred to me when you were doing that, saying that previous piece, and, and that is that different paths, I think, are equipped to provide different sorts of openings or different degrees of of progress. It's like to take an example, to take an analogy, we don't blame biology for not telling us about quantum mechanics because mm -hmm. it's just not biology's role to, to talk mm -hmm. about quantum mechanics. Even though quantum mechanics is in some sense fundamental to biology, biology doesn't go there. It has its realm, you know? Right. So I, I think that there are certain spiritual <laughs> disciplines and, and traditions who, which have a realm which may not encompass the entire range of possibility, but which are effective in, in bringing about a certain quality or, or degree of development. What do you think right. about that? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, I think that's part of what you, were, what you meant also before when you were saying, you know, you may study with the teacher and their capacity to take you so far, you come to the end of their paradigm or their understanding or their teachings and, uh, and still you're feeling the, the call to go further than that. And so something else happens. Yeah. And somebody else, you know, might decide to stay with that teacher because perhaps right. that teacher could take that person further than, than he could take you, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Different strokes for different folks. Yeah. <laughs> so this kind of segues into that, that gear shift that I wanted to do. Here's a passage. You say, the power of the guru is a universal power of God. It is the power of divine revelation. One who functions as a guru is a channel for that power, and there are no perfect channels. 
It is the seeker's responsibility to become familiar with the scriptures, the writings of other enlightened beings, and the voice of their own inner source of wisdom. These three sources of knowledge provide a way of checking the validity of the teacher. Seekers must be vigilant and make every effort to sharpen their discrimination. Spiritual teachers of any school must be vigilant if they want to serve in God's work of bringing souls back to the recognition of their unity with the divine. If you want to give directions about a path, then you'd better know that path. Otherwise, you will bear the karmic burden of having misled others, a burden it could take you many lifetimes to free yourself of. So, in your interview with Tammy Simon, um, you talked, frankly, about you know, the somewhat controversial things that Muktananda was accused of towards the end of his life. And um, you basically characterize those things, you know, some sexual dalliances of, of a certain kind, as being symptomatic of some shortcoming in his personality. And just to play devil's advocate, I, you know, we can talk about that and, play, and consider that possibility, mm -hmm. but just to play devil's advocate, I was thinking, well, you know, as long as he wasn't, I mean, maybe some of the women were unhappy about that and felt like they had been used or abused or something. Mm -hmm. Although, from the accounts I read, there was nothing forced or, or anything. But, um, you know, maybe he was doing some kind of tantric thing where he was enlivening right. his energy and it actually had an evolutionary purpose for him. Maybe. I don't mean to excuse inappropriate behavior or, or you know, imbalanced power relationship between guru and disciple, and, and maybe it was just inexcusable. But anyway, let's let's discuss this whole thing of, of teachers behaving responsibly or not, and um, the importance of discrimination on the part of the seeker in order not to get burned or you know disillusioned by right. such right. behavior. Right. So, what would you like me to talk about with that? Well, I gave you a big long intro there, but how did you process the? Let's. This here's a question that'll get you started. I mean, once those revelations came to light, did you become cynical? Did you become disillusioned? Did you some? How did you rationalize or or come to terms with that information? Well, I did see it as. I saw it, and I don't. I don't remember all of what how Tammy and I were talking about it. I mean, certainly with some teachers, it can be a personality flaw. With Baba, I saw it as part of his his tantric practices and his tantric tradition. And having known, uh, not until very late about that, and then he, he died. I don't know if he had continued to live, how I might have processed that or uh, thought about was I staying or leaving or what was going on, but I knew it wasn't in terms of being congruent with what one is trying to fulfill as a dharma, uh, as a teacher, that's a, that's, that's a real challenge. And how does a teacher, and so as I looked at that, I was going, well, how does a teacher fulfill that dharma of making teachings available in, at this time, in this place, in this culture? You know, so for instance, Buddha wouldn't allow women to become initiated or become monks until the very near the very end of his life, mm. and part of that was the uh, because there was such a patriarchal tradition and it was a patriarchal society, and women weren't supposed to have any kind of play in that, and so even when he allowed that to happen, he put the caveat that forever the the most uh, junior nun. 
uh, a most senior nun would always be junior to the most junior monk, uh, was how it was said. And so that uh, he was trying to sort of encode that ignorance that we would look at now in the tradition then, I think in support of trying to... Uh, I wonder if he really believed that or if he was trying to placate his, his I contemporaries. I think he was trying to make it acceptable. Mm. I mean, that's my conjecture. That's my, yeah. you know, that, for what that's worth. Um, so to me, you know, processing what, what was going on with Baba, um, there was, for me, also very clear the, the power of the teachings and the power of the practices. Uh, and I never, I never believed in the paradigm of uh, one is absolutely perfect, that a teacher is perfect. And even though, and that was something that bothered me often about even some of the Siddha Yoga teachings, was the perfection of the guru. Uh, and that it left people uh, with a false understanding of what perfected meant meant there was you know when you look at it in in a deeper light of understanding scriptures and texts and then perfected in the practice of meditation and fully accomplished uh, in that power uh, not necessarily transferred to every single thing that they do is going to be absolutely perfect in itself that's a that's part of the recipe for how they're related to uh, but there's a there's a level of discrimination that's to yeah. me required to understand you know how does that operate what's going on with that I was thinking about that, and I was thinking, you know, well, we might say nature's intelligence is perfect, un, uninterrupted by human interference and, mm -hmm. and, and so on. But then look what happens in nature. I mean, you know, animals are getting killed, and there's volcanoes, and there are forest fires, and, you know, there are planets probably right. getting hit by asteroids, wiping out all the life on them. and right. All kinds of stuff happens in nature that may not seem very perfect, but... Uh, that might just be our sort of um, limited understanding of what perfect means. Right, right, right. Which but could be me, an alibi for egregious behavior. We don't want to go there, but right. But uh, that's but that's that notion of how do we how do we use our discrimination and say, okay, this is where it crosses a boundary for me. I mean, yeah. for instance, well, early on, one of my first teachers was Choyam Trungpa Rinpoche, who was an alcoholic uh, or something, uh, right? who was an alcoholic and womanizer, uh, who. Yeah, and was upfront about that. I mean, he never pretended to be not sexually involved with many different women. And was that um, there was no, it wasn't hidden in any way, nor was his drinking. Uh, his teachings were sublime. Mm. Uh, and, and I remember, you know, being at talks and being in programs with him and being totally impressed and reading his works and being really um, uh, informed by that kind of perspective and, and how much that helped me to understand things like the spiritual warrior and living in the world and, and the spiritual materialism and meditation and all these different things that really uh, his teachings and his practices uh, supported me in. But I couldn't stand seeing him drink to the point where he's falling out of his chair. Yeah. And I just, you know, after a couple of years, I just couldn't, I, that was intolerable to me. I couldn't say that, oh, that was the wrong thing. It was wrong for me uh, to try and follow a teacher who had that flaw. I interviewed a, a very sweet gentleman named Sri M a, a few months ago, and he was in India. And um, I, we discussed this point, and his opinion was that, you know, these so-called crazy wisdom teachers who were doing reprehensible things and, and writing it off as crazy wisdom, he felt, in his, in his opinion, 
they were works in progress, you know, mm -hmm. that it, that does not represent full enlightenment, uh, that they, they had something, some awakening, some gift, some eloquence perhaps, but that they have more evolution yet to undergo. And uh, we shouldn't take that as an acceptable example of the full potential of the development of consciousness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I kind of resonate with that attitude, I think. Right. So, I guess on this point, you know, I have friends who became totally disillusioned when they discovered that their teacher or and or and or other teachers were were doing these sorts of things. I would encourage people not to become disillusioned. That again, we're all works in progress. As, as Fire Sign Theater said, we're all bozos on this bus, right. and uh, keep on trucking. You know, to coin another '60s phrase. Well, and that sense of developing the discrimination to be able to sort out, you know, what was what's the the nature of the truth in the teachings, the even the truth of what was being transmitted by that teacher, uh, and being able to hold that, even if the teacher itself is, you know, you're moving away from because uh, they're abusive or they're this or that. I mean, this. There are teachers who have a lot of shakti in terms. Of they have a lot of energy, uh, and they're abusive. That yeah. to me is unacceptable. Yeah. Uh, and it, just because they have a lot of energy doesn't give them a right to abuse anybody, uh, or engage in sexual abuse, or emotional abuse, or authoritarian abuse. And to me, that means those whatever those channels are that have to be cleared so that a person is really a, a living presence that communicates that to me the, the the understanding of the 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 boundless love the boundless compassion the boundless kindness the boundless patience um, that is the nature of our our true self that is the divine within us uh, and becoming more and more merged in that informed by that that the vehicles of the mind and body become the expressions of that uh, the flowering of that that's where we see, uh, to me, the kind of presence of grace. Too often, the ordinary mind is impressed by power and sort of the raw use of power and not the humble presence of a, a beautifully compassionate, loving, kind being. Mm -hmm. And that's to me, is much more revealing of their nature uh, of being at one with or in communion with the infinite. And being able to walk around both with this body and this this mind and uh, as a, a facet, a face of the divine, but the back door is open. The infinite is always pouring through. The infinite is informing our every moment, our experience, our life, how we look at the other, that there is no other. We're always looking at, oh, I'm encountering another divine face, another face of the infinite of my own self standing before me or coming to me. Mm. Yeah, one drum that I keep be beating in, on this show is that I think that it will be valuable, and I hope that the show is contributing to this, for us as a spiritual culture, as a larger culture, to gain a greater and greater un clarity of understanding about what enlightenment actually is and what an example of enlightenment looks like. Um, because it would, firstly, it's inspiring, 
uh, you know, it's, it's something to really shoot for if you realize how, how marvelous it can be. And, and secondly, it can safeguard the path and prevent one from getting hung up in um, trips that are not going to be so helpful. I mean, obviously we learn from everything, and, but if you can avoid spending 20 years being abused, in, <laughs> you know, Leah Remini has this whole uh, show on A&E right now about Scientology and, mm. and, uh, and the horrors that, that she and others have gone through and how much money they've been milked mm. for and, mm. and things like that. You know, so maybe Scientology is good for some people, but if we just have a clearer understanding of what enlightenment, higher consciousness and all really is, it seems to me it could really... Uh, smooth and safeguard uh, and accelerate the path for, for millions of people. Well, that and, and being able to reflect on what are we attracted to. Yeah, right. You know, because there are people who they think, you know, the, the trappings of power, the trappings of domination. I mean, we saw that in our presidential election. Mm -hmm. But that, that these, you know, external trappings that mean nothing and can actually be a red flag to what the abuses are and what the unseemly state of that being might be, uh, we have to re we have to be self-reflective. What am I attracted to? Because I might be attracted to the very toxin, the very poison I need to confront. Uh, but better to confront it internally. Yeah, that's a good point. What am I attracted to? I mean, we can't totally blame the teacher or the organization yeah. if we're attracted to something toxic. Uh, you know, right. there's there's like attracts like, you know, there's something in us that's that's causing us to <laughs> reminds me of this this car this animated movie. It's called A Bug's Life. And the funniest movie the funniest scene in the whole movie was it's a it's a restaurant and this w w this waiter comes out with a platter of poop and he says, Who ordered the poo poo platter? And all these these flies go zoop <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, time to shift, shift notes, I think, on that. <laughs> Maybe this will be getting towards the end, but there's an interesting thing that you said in your book. You said, when it comes to the higher realms of consciousness, the heart chakra and the throat chakra, and I presume you would also indicate the Ajna chakra, involving the actual power of consciousness underlying the mind, the binding forces are greater. So it kind of reminded me of the, you know, the Lord of the Rings, where the, the closer Frodo got to the pit of doom or whatever it was called, the more difficult the temptation for him. And it, it was only through, you know, I guess his, his friend Sam that he, he managed to get there. But are you saying that sort of the, the closer we get to the summit, so to speak, the steeper the climb and the, the, the greater the challenges and tests and obstacles we may encounter? Well, and you're getting closer to the root of the mind, and which means the root of bondage, because much of what we identify with is really the mind. And so when you're entering the, the, the sort of levels that are representing the root nature of the mind, then it really is, you know, so in that allegory, uh, that vision of Shakti then really moving, having to move the mind through that. That it's the power then of that awakened, of Kundalini, the practice of an awakened mantra that helps to move consciousness beyond the mind. The mind can only go so far and then it's just like trying to jump over your shadow. You can't. And so it really takes this influx and this support 
of the inner power of grace. That's why Kundalini Shakti is, is the inner guru. It is the power of the guru. Uh, it's the power of the one that can take you beyond uh, duality into unity, take you beyond the mind into infinite mind, infinite consciousness. A lot of people these days say, I don't need a guru, I don't want a guru, I'll be my own guru. Do you think that that's a dicey situation, that, that one really <clears throat> does need, at least at, at certain critical stages of one's process, uh, an external guru? It's, it's important to reflect on who's saying that, when we, even as we say it to ourselves, who's the one saying that? Uh, it's usually the ego mind saying it. And the ego mind has always wanted to think it was its own guru. Mm. And when, you know, for most people, that is their guru. Uh, who's, who's the one saying, I'm going to get up and I'm going to do asanas in the morning, or I'm going to practice meditation? Uh, oh, no, I don't feel like it today. I think I'll skip it. No, I really wanted to do it. It's all their ego mind. And so we're used to following the ego mind as the guru. The problem with the ego mind as the guru is it can't get, it can't get past itself. That's it, trying to jump over its shadow. So at some point, there needs to be an influx of that grace, that power, uh, whether it's an awakening to the inner guru, that, that then the, the ego mind has to relate to what's, the, what's that living presence of the divine within. That is the one who I need to follow, not just my ego mind. That's why ultimately all paths are a path of surrender. They're surrendered to being informed, motivated by, directed by that consciousness that is beyond the ego mind. But first, the ego mind often relates to it as alien, separate, different, um, uh, wary of, fearful of, uh, all those different things. Part of the archetype of the guru-disciple relationship and the, the aspect of it having to do with obedience was that it was meant to be a reflection of how do you get the ego mind to be completely surrendered to the presence, the living presence of the divine within? And so the external guru-disciple relationship was a training for the ego mind to become completely obedient to the divine within. Unfortunately, the external is obviously subject to all kinds of uh, distortions and perversions uh, of that kind of authority, mm. uh, just as the inner relationship is subject to all kinds of delusions. Uh, both of them are dangerous. Mm. Potentially dangerous, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so it's the razor's edge, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, this has been great. We've covered a lot of stuff. Is there anything that we haven't covered that comes to mind that you want to, you know, leave people with or discuss before we wrap up? Uh, yeah, there's, you know, in, in uh, the collection of poetry, Kali's Bazaar, and that's a collection of poetry that the infinite speaks to me in meditation and I do my best to be the scribe of. Mm -hmm. One of the poems that just was coming to mind was, Oh, what fun it is pretending there's a we when we both know there isn't even a me. <laughs> That's nice. So we've, we've engaged in this uh, convention, this pretense that there's a you and a me. Uh, and uh, we've played around with that for a couple of hours now. But the truth is, 
it's just the one. Yeah. Interacting with itself. Yes. Great. Well, that's a nice note to end on. So as, as usual, I'll be putting up a page on BatGap with links to your websites and books and people can get in touch. And, and you want to mention, like, what kinds of stuff you offer? I mean... Yeah, yeah. well, we offer, you know, through Anamkara Meditation Foundation, we have local programs, free programs a couple times a month. We have a retreat coming up at the Garrison Institute on the end of April, the last weekend in April, the 28th through the 30th. Which is in the Catskills or someplace? And the Garrison Institute is on the Hudson River, mm. um, beautiful Hudson Valley, and it's going. the title of that is Living Through Dying. Mm. And so it's going to be a, a retreat on exploring all the ways, both kind of literally how do we live through dying, but the, the various levels that we die at, mm -hmm. how, how we die to old hopes and dreams how do we how does the ego cope with things and have to die to itself in the spiritual process and literally how do we prepare for death because much of our practices in yogic and meditative traditions were also very consciously a preparation for how consciousness moves through death to incarnate once again and ways of understanding that teachings to support that and to open up the awareness of what the eternal is that never dies. So that retreat, Living Through Dying, will be the end of April. And then we also have a, a program titled Awakening Kundalini, The Path to Radical Freedom. So it's based on the book, and that'll be a one-day program at the New York Open Center in Manhattan. And that's coming up on March 12th. Okay. And then you are also a therapist of some sort, right? So right. you meet with clients and and do you do that like just locally or also over skype well people come to me locally but yes i do do a fair amount of uh, skype consultations from well that opens up all over the globe so i've sure. worked with people from you know as far away as australia and new zealand and europe and to around the united states uh, who are going through various kinds of uh, processes of spiritual transformation awakening challenges and they work with me once or twice, they work with me regularly, whatever suits them, mm. uh, they contact me and, and set that up. Yeah, we just um, put a cat, we have a, a page on past interviews uh, called Categorical Index, and it, it attempts to categorize all the people I've interviewed, but we just created a new category called sp Spiritual Emergency Help, because oh, just, yeah. we get so many requests for that. Uh, right. So, well, and there are spiritual emergence networks that... Yeah. Uh, you know, people get referred to me through them, and I refer people back to those for local resources. Uh, there's a spiritual emergence network in Europe and Canada, the United States, Australia. Yeah. And those kinds of resources on my website, thesoulsjourney.com. Okay. And then there are others who deal specifically with Kundalini, maybe not so much in terms of emergencies, right. but like Bonnie Greenwell and Joan Harrigan mm -hmm. and, and others. So help is out there. People right. need it. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, thanks. Let me just make a, some general wrap-up points that I always make. I, I've been speaking with Lawrence Edwards, and um, you know, I'll have a page on BatGap where you can get in touch with him. Um, this is part of an ongoing series of interviews. There have been, uh, we're, we'll be coming up on 400 next year, and um, we intend to keep doing this. Um, so if you'd like to be notified of future ones, there's a, a place to sign up to be notified by email.
This also exists as an audio podcast. There's a link for that on the website if you want to subscribe to that. Um, then uh, check out the different menus. There, there's some various things, and we keep adding to it. So just explore around. So thanks for listening or watching, and um, we'll see you for the next one, which should be in about a week. Thanks, Lawrence. Thank you, Rick. Great talking with you. Yeah, I really appreciate it.